Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Hope you're doing okay today. Um, I'm hanging in there. And I had a really good discussion with Dr. Rebecca Sachs today. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Uh, I love talking to her. She has such a good way of explaining things in a, in a really, and obviously it's probably because she's a really good therapist, but today is an important topic. Let me back up. We're going to be talking about autism and autism spectrum issues and OCD. And a lot of parents out there are finding that they are in no man's land when it comes to dealing with their child's OCD and autism, because those are two often very separate worlds. You have your professionals who are in the autism world, who know how to treat autism, know how to talk and educate you about autism. And then you have the OCD world, which knows about OCD, can talk about OCD and how to treat it. And unfortunately, often there's no overlap. And if there is an overlap, sometimes you might get an OCD therapist who doesn't really fully understand the autism spectrum issues that are there and might see everything as OCD. And you might get someone in the autism world who really doesn't understand OCD and will see everything under the umbrella of autism. So it leaves parents grappling for education and guidance on what to do when they're, maybe they're getting different information from two different worlds. So I decided to invite Dr. Rebecca Sachs on because she combines those worlds in such a beautiful way. I wish we had more. I called her um, a rare unicorn <laughs> in my show notes because it's so hard to find somebody who really, really fully understands both in such a beautiful way. So Dr. Rebecca Sachs specializes in the assessment and treatment of individuals with OCD and anxiety or individuals on the autism spectrum who also experience difficult co-occurring disorders, which is so rare to find. She is a sought-after clinician and speaker on topics related to the treatment of OCD, anxiety, autism spectrum disorders, and how to optimally treat these individuals with co-occurring disorders. And she was actually recognized as a rising star by the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, the ADAA, receiving their Career Development Leadership Award in 2015, which does not surprise me at all. Uh, she has a private practice called CBT Spectrums, and you can find more information at cbtspectrums.com. Uh, she practices in New York, and I heard her talk at the International OCD Foundation Conference, the OCD Conference, I think a couple of years ago, and I was like, I could listen to her all day. <laughs> she... She, I mean, like some people are super knowledgeable, but they don't have a good way of putting things in simplistic terms. And they kind of, you know, you just kind of glaze over. I could listen to her all day. She's a fantastic teacher of explaining things and helping them, helping break, I can't even talk today, breaking them down in simplistic ways, uh, better than me, because apparently language is not my first language. And that makes no sense at all. <laughs> it's been a rough day. I can't speak today. Anyway, I think you're going to really enjoy this. I'm not even going to edit out all my rambling. We're just going to get to her interview. I do want to say thank you to NoCD before we jump into her interview because they are sponsoring this episode. And if you don't know what NoCD is, 
They provide online OCD therapy in the US, UK, Australia, and even Canada now. And you can schedule a free 15-minute consultation just to even find out if they're a right fit for you and your child. I think even getting an assessment by an OCD specialist is really good because a lot of times parents don't know if their child has OCD and don't want to commit to treatment. And you can go to an OCD and get a virtual assessment, which I think is a great place to start. So you can go to treatmyocd.com and I will leave a link in the show notes as well. So without further ado and further rambling, my apologies, let's get to my interview with Dr. Sachs. Well, I want to welcome Dr. Rebecca Sachs to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I love your show. So this is very exciting. Oh, I appreciate that. This is a topic that really is overdue. I get so many questions about autism and OCD. Sure. I often have to just say like, that's not my area of expertise. And I feel so bad because it's like a missing gap for these parents who have that dual diagnosis. So I'm I'm glad to have you on because I feel like that's your forte and we're going to dive right into it. So where to begin? Uh, Well, actually, let's begin with just a, if you can share a little bit about yourself, that would be great. Sure. So I'm Rebecca. I'm a psychologist. I live in Brooklyn, New York. And um, it's quite interesting is I think a lot of people have this experience, but both autism and OCD both found me. I did not find them. And when I look back, it makes sense how I sort of landed working with these two groups, but I enjoy it very, very much. I enjoy um, my autistic patients and how um, their brains work a little differently. Um, I think it's a natural fit. And I love doing this transformative work when people have anxiety and OCD and like they can really see how their world goes from being really, really small to so much more meaningful and enlarged. So I have a private practice in now it's the state of New York, thanks to telehealth, but I'm, I'm going back to in-person work because that is one of the things like as we're diving in is a lot of my autistic children and teens, we really, really struggled with telehealth. It was sort of like a stopgap during the pandemic. Whereas I think some of my autistic adults, it was fine, but realizing there really is a need to go back to some in-person work. And then the last thing is, so I have a three and a half year old daughter. I'm a single mom by choice. Um, So that's just also an interesting layer to my experience. And she keeps me on my toes as well. So yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Three is like a really cute, but like time consuming age. <laughs> yes. And I don't know where people came up with terrible twos. It's definitely the terrorist threes. In it's our like the terrible toddlers, I think. There <laughs> you go. Terrible toddlers. Yeah. Well, you definitely are a rare unicorn when it comes to treatment, because I mean, I think if a parent could find someone who treats anxiety and OCD and autism, I mean, they would feel like they hit the lottery. Yeah. So let's dive into some of the things that I think a lot of questions that I get around the dual diagnoses, treatment approaches. Let's just talk about, we'll just dive right into there. It was like, that's like number five on my list of questions. We'll just dive in there and then we'll go back out. What is the difference in treatment approaches? That's probably the number one answer I get. So I'm actually going to say something different. I'm going to say at the end of the day, there is nothing fundamentally different with treatment approaches in the same way. I didn't make up this saying I'm stealing it from Valerie Gauss. But in the same way, like you would never withhold penicillin from an autistic individual with strep throat, we're not going to withhold CBT with ERP from an autistic individual with OCD. Um, There are going to be modifications, 
But if you really are thinking like a behavioral and cognitive scientist or therapist, you're always thinking about like, what are my mechanisms of change, right? And so the biggest mechanism of change is we're going to start to understand our inner experience, our emotions, maybe our thoughts or our urges. We're going to realize we don't have to act on them. And being able to have the choice to say is, if this emotionally based behavior does not serve me, then how can I do something different? How can I do opposite action? And at the end of the day, that's going to be exactly what we're doing, whether someone is neurotypical or neurodiverse. It's just about how do we do all of those steps, identifying the inner experiences, being able to understand I don't have to act on them being able to make those choices of do I want to do opposite action and then what opposite action actually looks like, those might look a little different. So if I can even just elaborate, the first thing is understanding our inner experiences. So there are certain core, I would say, information processing differences for autistic individuals. So one of them we know is emotional regulation differences. For example, there's this thing called the fancy term is alexithymia. What it often means is that individuals have difficulty identifying or articulating their emotional experience. So we may have to do a little bit more work in that area. We may have to have visuals like an emotions wheel and our emotion sheet. We may have to do a lot more of identifying what do emotions feel like in our body, like coloring in like, uh, and I think we do this naturally as CBTers, like coloring in on a body chart. What does anger feel like? What does anxiety feel like and where, but spending a lot more time there. And then also if it's children, having parents reinforce that idea, like not necessarily going to the exposures, but just a lot of emotion talk, a lot of modeling about emotion talk. So like we, I do it with my toddler, I'm feeling angry. I'll say out loud, I'm feeling frustrated, right? And just that modeling and encouraging parents, teachers, professionals to do that around our patients. And then like behaviorists, when we see our patients doing it, either as they're practicing the skill or doing it a bit more organically. Praise on the spot. I love, I love how you noticed you were feeling angry and you told me that because these things might not come so naturally. So that'd be one thing I would say. The other thing is that I often find with emotional regulation is a lot of my patients, I would say at baseline are experiencing like arousal. So if you imagine you and I on a day where there's nothing big going on in our lives, we wake up at maybe a two, we spill our coffee on ourselves, we're now at a three or a four, we get stuck in traffic, we're at a five, six, and then something big happens in our office and that's when we may go to a seven or an eight. Well, for autistic individuals, they may be waking up without spilling the coffee, without kids stuck in traffic, they're already at like a four or a five. So you can imagine then when OCD shows up or there's some kind of trigger going on, how it can escalate far quicker. So maybe teaching, I know as ERPers, we tend not to do relaxation strategies, but teaching people relaxation strategies not to do once they already are experiencing sort of OCD trigger, but just how to like calm their central nervous system in different ways. And that may also look different for an autistic person and maybe a stim and maybe sort of sensory soothing. It may be in some ways cutting out some of the noise uh, or other sensory information 
and not in a way that's escaping or avoiding, but understanding it's sort of just bringing their body a bit more to baseline that we would typically experience. The only other thing that I would say in terms of emotional regulation, that first part is, you know, most of us experience emotions like a dimmer switch. We can turn our lights really bright and we have all these gradations of turning it low. For autistic individuals, they will experience emotions more like an on-off switch or a three-way light bulb, off, on, really on. And I think this is where parents say is like, my kid goes to zero to 60 and they feel like they're running interference constantly in life. So their kids don't go from on to really on. So part of the work is also really helping kids first themselves and adults, I would say. I mean, I'm saying kids, but I think this is adults too, if they're coming late to the diagnosis, understanding these sort of gradations. There's a really good resource, the five-point scale, you know, the emotions thermometer. You can use those visuals and really asking a lot of questions. Where would you rate yourself? And then increasing that to communication, like parents or a professional saying that. You can even use it at school, like keeping that visual on the desk so if the teacher on the corner of their eye is starting to notice the kid is getting dysregulated, they can point to the five-point scale and like the kid can then just indicate where they are. And I think sometimes just building that insight and awareness is very, very helpful for that first part of like what we're trying to do. I said a lot. I could continue to the other steps or I could stop for a second. No, I'm just soaking this up. I can listen to you all day. I think you just have like just this way of explaining things, which I think are so helpful. Oh, thank That's you. like the whole penicillin thing. That's so accurate. And you're highlighting this foundational aspect that needs to happen that is really critical. And I think it's really helpful for parents to hear this, you know, that, that they need to work on the emotional identification and just the background that's going to really help them with ERP. Right. And I do like the understanding that they're waking up at a four or a five. I feel like these are things that maybe some parents don't realize, and that really will help them when they're moving more into the ERP aspect of things. So yeah, continue though. Cause I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great to hear what you're finding as like, especially relevant, because I also think for us, when we're choosing exposures, knowing that individuals start at a four or a five, when we would be picking something on a hierarchy that we naturally think is like maybe a low or a low medium type of exposure, it may be experienced as very, very high. So I think part of what I often do is I'm just constantly trying to find, even if I need to like go sort of on a more microscopic level, what is an exposure that's still going to make like someone feel uncomfortable and they're approaching discomfort, but that is accessible to where they are in the moment. Um, and this is also why often when we are doing ERP with autistic patients, it's just going to take longer and that's okay. I mean, I think we say is we're running a marathon with all of our patients. It doesn't matter how long that marathon takes. So, but as long as we're moving them in a different direction than what OCD has basically been demanding from them all this time. So once we've got sort of like, okay, I'm having this inner experience, I can notice it, I can label it, I can even communicate to it. It's then this idea of I may have an impulse and I don't necessarily have to act on it. So like when we're thinking about one of the other thinking differences 
is this idea of inhibition and how that can be so challenging for not just autistic kids, but also kids with ADHD, like neurodiverse individuals in general. I think a lot of us New Yorkers, we have uh, difficulties with inhibition. <laughs> I <don't> agree. <laughs> you know, we're going to tell you how we see it. And so like, if you popped me in the Midwest, I may really seem disinhibited in some ways. And it's just even understanding that's a concept, right? Like I can have a thought and I don't need to act on it. So like, I often, when I'm teaching this concept, don't even start with uncomfortable things. Like we can be thinking about ice cream and like I can be talking about what my favorite ice cream is, but the whole point for them is to not talk about the ice cream, to just practice thinking a thought and not saying it or in making it sort of a silly game in a little bit of a way, but then connecting it to this idea of being able to have and always talking about it as a choice. So I think this is one of the things that's very big in the autistic world is if you talk to autistic adults, a lot of autistic adults have reported their experiences with ABA as extremely invalidating. And so I am going to say something. Some listeners are going to like it. Some listeners aren't going to like it. I don't think on face value there's anything wrong with ABA. I think the idea is who are the stakeholders of the decision makers who are deciding what the behavioral targets are and what the rewards are. If the patient isn't involved in that process, no matter how young they are, if they're not collaborating, then I do see how we're taking away agency and it could be a, like, you know, abusive. But if a patient is saying, no, like this is creating problems in my life, let's target this behavior. Here are the ways or how we're going to decide like what's motivating or not, then the principles of ABA can be applied. So just Using this idea of I can have a thought, I don't need to act on it, I can withstand it, and then looking at sort of the more naturalistic rewards, it can apply to both autism-specific behaviors, but also OCD and anxiety behaviors, and just learning that concept. And then the last part is, is really sort of looking at what is opposite action. So sometimes just saying like resist doing something is very, very hard. I mean, I think we know this. If we say is do this instead and not where it becomes like a new compulsion or a new ritual, but something that's meaningful in life. So let's do something social or let's cook a meal together. Let's do a physical activity. Let's listen to music even. Um, and so those opposite actions may look a little different for a kiddo with autism. And this is also where I really, when it's possible, like incorporating preferred interests in if we can in some ways. So like as I'm doing an exposure, we may be singing a song about OCD, but like including in that song, things about stuff that really interests them. Um, so that would be how I think it would look different. And then the only other thing that I would say is talking a lot less. So I talk a lot. So this is often hard for me, but really bringing down sort of that data flow because it's not so necessary and also just slowing down the pace, slowing, slowing, slowing it down, both within a session or session to session, I think is how CBT with ERP looks a little differently. Yeah. And then there's some really good highlights, I think, of how to approach it like a little bit differently. You know, and it's really helping with the, some of the autism as well. I wonder what your experience is with the lack of insight, you know, so I feel like that's another, another common question that I get, or 
for the parents that are in my AT parenting community that have these dual diagnoses, I'll often, they'll be the ones that will say like, my child says it's just part of them. Or my child says, leave them alone. Like there's just lack of insight. What do you do with that? So I think there are a couple different things. Like the first part is when it truly is lack of insight. I think once you're able to, in some ways, go through some of the motions, then I left out a last piece is sort of doing like a metacognitive like conversation, like a looking back. And maybe we're even drawing like a story, like let's draw a story about how the exposure went. This is what you typically did when this situation happened. Here's how you like think and here's how you feel. Rebecca taught you that maybe there's another way. When Rebecca first told you that, what did you think? You probably thought she's crazy. How did Rebecca help you decide to take a step anyway and try her idea and be flexible? Okay, that worked. Once you started doing it, how did you feel? How strong was that feeling? And then how did it result? Oh, it resulted in this. So what can we say we learned from this entire experience? And sometimes like we do that when we're doing cognitive therapy, like hypothesis testing. But I think we sort of, with our neurotypical patients, just feel like they get the message at the end by going through all the steps. We may want to make it this abstract process a lot more concrete and also even a bit more visual. So that's one thing that can help build insight. We are going to, whenever possible, try to explain what's going on and provide a rationale in as many different ways as possible. I like to use metaphors. I like to use visuals. Um, I like to even use examples of my own life to try to make it relevant. But there may also be some times, especially when a patient is at this point so invested in feeling comfortable because the world feels so invalidating and so uncomfortable in so many ways because of being an autistic person in a neurotypical world and then layered upon about having OCD that's barely been unchecked for a while. And, you know, and I can give a lot of compassion and understanding to that, that they may present as like rigid, that they're going to find a hole in every rationale that you're going to present. And that's where I say is like, if you notice that's what's going on, that's where we're no longer going to try to convince the patient to do the exposure for OCD. We're just going to say is like, let's just try it. This idea of like flexibility or trying something different just for the sake of trying it. Sometimes you'll have a patient say, well, I don't have to try it because I know I can do this if I wanted to. And so I'll say, okay, I said, I don't know, prove me wrong or let's make a bet, right? Like, what do you want to bet on? And I'll be a little paradoxical. At the end of the day, I really do believe that this patient can do it, can do the exposure. I have so much optimism and hope, but in a way I'm almost being a little challenging. Well, I don't fully believe you can do it. Like, prove me wrong. And like, what are you want to bet a pizza on this? Like, you owe me this if I get it wrong. And I think, and then afterwards, I will say to the patient, because I never want them to think like, I really do doubt them or don't have confidence in their abilities. That is when I will say, do you really think I thought you couldn't do it? And like, we'll actually have that discussion. So that's like one thing that I would also do to sort of like address when we're seeing sort of stuckness or rigidity or what may look on the outside as a lack of insight. I also think is we often do exposures based on this idea of social motivation. Like 
look, aren't you going to be so happy? You're going to get to do this thing. Or like, I'm going to be so proud of you. Aren't you going to be so proud of yourself? And that contingency isn't always necessarily the case with autistic patients. It may be, but not necessarily. So this may be more a tangible they're working towards where we say, come on, let's just try it. I know you really want this. It may even be working on a negative reinforcement paradigm, like especially for an autistic individual who's so used to doing a behavior to get out of feeling uncomfortable. So let's just build that in. Like, hey, if you do this, guess what? Instead of meeting with me for 45 minutes, I'll end the session at 30 minutes. And they're like, okay. And if that's the reward, 15 minutes less of Rebecca, like then let's do it. And I think you'll be surprised or maybe not surprised how many patients that's what's reinforcing to them. And I'm okay with that because I'd rather do one exposure for five minutes rather than sort of running the clock. Yeah. 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 I think that's a good point. Another thing that I get asked a lot is how to tell the difference between autistic behavior that maybe you aren't going to target versus Mm -hmm. OCD, you know, kids are rigid, you know, maybe they want the red cup and they want to sit here and they're not hurting anyone. If they were just on the spectrum and there wasn't OCD, you know, it might just be entertained. And I'm trying to think of other examples, even just rigid routines aren't harming someone. Uh, I think it gets so muddy when you've got the, those dual diagnoses of, do I target that? A lot of times the parents, this actually happened just this week. Someone was asking a question and someone else was like, um, that's just autism, you know, like that's yeah, not yeah. OCD. Yeah. So to me, I mean, in all honesty, I find that OCD really does follow most of the common OCD themes in autistic individuals. So you are going to still see contamination. You are still going to see checking and symmetry. You are still going to see sort of fear of harm. I mean, I think what we're, what we're feel very sort of like comfortable saying, ah, yes, that's OCD. That's also OCD and autistic individuals. When you're outside of those more common OCD themes, that's when I think you start to have to think about maybe this is a bit more autism. Is this just a preference for sameness? Is something that seems like a non-functional routine to an outsider feels a bit functional to the autistic individual? Is this sort of a sensory seeking behavior that helps regulate an individual? To me is in those types of situations, they aren't necessarily my therapy targets. The times where they do become therapy targets is when they're getting in the way of what I would say independent and meaningful living, especially when it's meaningful for the patient. So for example, like if I have a young adult patient who's going to college and they feel like they have to read a full and complete chapter of their manga comic that just came out and they can't move on to do their schoolwork or they can't move on to go to sleep until they do it. But they're either staying up completely late and then getting sleep dysregulated and exhausted and all that comes about, or they're constantly not getting to their schoolwork and in danger of failing school, but they really want to stay in school and succeed in college. It's their you know, goal, not their parents or anyone else. This is when it then may not be an OCD, but it becomes a target. 
I would also say is sensory sensitivities. I do believe that um, sensory sensitivities, there is a place to definitely be accommodated, a place to wear noise canceling headphones um, and other things like that. But if we also know that a kid wants to go to the birthday party of their best friends and it's going to be loud or the mom is never able to vacuum her house without uh, the child's getting completely dysregulated, then sometimes it does need to be a target. And so again, we would sort of do almost like a systematic desensitization exposure, but starting really, really small. And sometimes also this is where I would do exposures a little differently. Usually we think like we don't like distraction or we don't like to add that in to exposures. This may be the time where we are singing a song. We are playing a game. We are like getting stickers constantly. It's really more reinforcement along the way. But again, if we're going to do the vacuuming exposure, we're going to do it maybe first with headphones on, not necessarily noise canceling, and for 30 seconds. And that's the exposure for the day, right? We also, I forgot to mention this, one of the things that helps in terms of like insight building is just providing coping statements. Like this is hard, this feels intolerable, or this feels like I can't do it, but I can actually handle it. And that may look a little different than what we're doing with our neurotypical patients. But I think those are two big things that help me separate, like what is OCD and what is autism? And then even if it is just autism, I'll put that in quotes, like when do they still want to maybe be a therapy target is, um, yeah, when it's getting in the way of life for a kid. Yeah. And that makes sense because, you know, I think, I think parents have to wear both hats and they have to see both things. and most of the time they're not going to have a professional who is as skilled and in tune as you, they're going to have, you know, a therapist that's focusing on the autism. And if they're lucky, maybe a therapist who's focusing on the OCD and neither of them will know what the other one is doing. The the treatment, unfortunately is so siloed. I mean, I think there are uh, individuals like me who we are really bridging this, these two worlds, but just the way that it's set up. So, you know, as you were saying that I had some thoughts, I think a good rule of thumb is for parents when, so there's nothing bad with accommodation per se, there's positive accommodation and there's negative accommodation is for parents to say is long-term, if I jump in and support my kid, or if we do this accommodation, is it likely to promote long-term independence in my child, right? So if it is saying is, I'm going to wear noise canceling headphone on the subway because it's just so overwhelming. But riding the subway is promoting long term independence for our child because that's how they get to school. That's how they get to play dates. How, that's how they get to a museum. That's how they eventually get to work. Then, yeah, we're the noise canceling headphones. Like, that's what I did. I found I was really sensitive to noise and smells when I was pregnant. And noise canceling headphones saved me. I like, put something on social media and an autistic friend of mine said like, oh, you neurotypicals are so late to the game. (laughs) So then I asked her, I said, what do you got for like smell? Everything smells. She said, just take a, like a peppermint oil rollerball and put it on the tip of your nose. And it, oh my goodness, it saved me through a funky summer in New York when I was pregnant. And right. That promoted my independence. I think the other thing is we sometimes with kids who have these co-occurring conditions, we can fall into the trap of maybe over pathologizing every behavior. You know, I like my coffee a certain way. If I walked into a store 
And somebody just gave me like a coffee, not have, if they get, if someone gave me decaf coffee and also like very, very light with whole milk, I would not want to drink it. And I'd probably throw a hissy fit. If somebody told me that's it, that's the only coffee you're getting for the day. I think we sometimes have to think about our autistic individuals. They're going to have preferences too. Their preferences may look different than a neurotypical's preferences, um, but that doesn't mean they're wrong. And it also doesn't mean that it needs to be treated in any way. So yeah, I think it's also understanding that sometimes as well. I think it's good for parents to hear because I think, you know, I think sometimes everything's targeted, you know, versus like, you know, my neurotypical kids, you know, when my son said, um, yesterday. He's like, I like things in five. Oh, something was for, it was episode 49. And he was like, that makes me really uncomfortable. And I was like, tell me more about that. You know, I'm like a nightmare mom. <laughs> He's like, well, I want things in fives, you know? And then my 17 year old was like, mom, not everything's OCD. I'm like, back off child. You know, he, he has OCD and that's concerning. And so, but I, you know, I use it as an example. Cause like, yeah, I look at every little thing that's under the OCD umbrella because I'm like, no, no, no. You need to be aware that that is an OCD issue and that can that can grow. Let's talk about it. We need to do like, you know, different numbers. But when you have someone on the spectrum, they're going to have behaviors and uh, other kids too, that don't need to really be addressed. You know, they're just part of their preference or it's part of who they are. So I think that was a really good point. I have one more question and I don't know what the answer is to this, but if somebody is seeing someone and they're getting treated for autism, their child is, Mm -hmm. is there anything that actually can do that can make the OCD worse. You know, like if I was to bring my child to a a general therapist and they had OCD, but they were treating it as anxiety, you know, that could be a bad thing. What about in the autism world? Hmm. I'm trying to think. I don't think anything like just on surface Mm -hmm. would necessarily be harmful to OCD. I think, and this isn't even autism I mean, OCD specific, I think also sometimes is there's a fear to push kids, this fear about emotional dysregulation. And that sometimes may happen is like, and again, thinking about like, well, what could be triggers and how do we change the environment or how can we set them up for success? I think a good autism therapist isn't always going to like be stressing that. The only other thing that I would say is, and again, so I'm going to say is, I don't think there's anything about autism treatment in any way that could inherently harm OCD work or exacerbate OCD work. What I would just say is sometimes also we find like what's working for a kid with autism. And as they're moving through developmental stages, those things need to shift, like so that we can promote more independence or what was an accommodation in the past. Maybe we don't want that necessarily to be an accommodation or we want to work on a bit more on self-advocacy. Maybe that's the, I'm just sort of thinking out loud. That may be the one thing, you know, in the autism world, we talk a lot about self-advocacy, which I think is a hugely important concept and often undervalued. What we may sometimes fall in the trap of as our patients are getting really good at self-advocacy and we want to reward that, that if they're sort of self-advocating 
to not have to address the OCD in the same way your son said, like, leave me alone, right? You know, an autistic patient may say is like, leave me alone with the OCD. And we want to reward, we want to reinforce that self-advocacy. And we may inadvertently fall into that trap of, um, <laughs> of not saying, okay, I hear you, good self-advocating. But this is still like OCD and something we want to target. Yeah. Yeah. That can be a little tricky sometimes for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So one other thing that I think might look a little different is teaching certain specific skills to Uh our patients with autism, right? So sometimes things may look like OCD and they still may have sort of like OCD in that Venn diagram, but part of it may also sometimes be like a skills deficit. So I may have a patient who has contamination OCD and I see that they're avoiding doing the laundry and there may be an OCD component. But what I also know is doing laundry is, even though we think it's simple, it's a fairly complex multi-step activity. And especially one washing machine looks different than another washing machine. So breaking those steps down, creating a visual, practicing that skill. So like an individual feels confident in like just doing the laundry and then building in how like contamination OCD and needing to do the exposures. Sometimes we're going to have to do that, especially when we're thinking about what we call like daily living skills or independent living skills. What we know is for autistic individuals, often what we're seeing them doing on a day-to-day basis is below what we would expect for a person of their age and IQ. So that we may need to come in with some discrete skills. It would also be the same thing. Like if we're thinking about just right OCD, where we have a lot of patients, we're spending a lot of time thinking about the right thing to say. We can look at perhaps because of the social communication um, challenges or differences that come with autism that they may historically have had learning experiences where they have said the wrong thing or they haven't been understood and there actually is some truth rather than just OCD to this thought of, I need to make sure I'm saying the right thing. And first we need to do communication skills building and helping people be able to make themselves understood or not do as much like a social faux pas that then they're perseverating on afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And I always talk to parents about like having to have two filters, you know, your typical parenting filter, you know, is this developmentally appropriate? Da, da, da. And then now you have to have the anxiety OCD filter. Is this an OCD thing? And I feel like what, then it sounds like there, you have to have that third filter on when you have a child with autism as well. You know, is this their autism or is this like a lack of lagging skills that, that we have to work on? So, yeah. uh, and, and the answer could be all three, you right. know, like it's always all two, you know, yeah. my house a lot of the time. So Personification is a big thing, you know, for, you know, treating adolescents with OCD. I know you mentioned metaphors before. So mm-hmm. do parents avoid metaphors and personification or do they talk more in concrete ways? Because, you know, I think some parents are, you know, and I've always stayed away from, you know. So a little bit of both. You're going to want to know the child that you're working with or the young adult that you're working with or even the adult that you're working with. So at the end of the day, autistic individuals tend to think more concretely and more literally. So you'll want to do that. But also I would say is when you are getting a metaphor or example that is extremely meaningful to the individual, it can be so, so powerful. So I think that's sort of it. Using their narrow interest. 
know, yeah, 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 or yeah, or whatever that, that really excites them in that way. So, yeah. Okay, good point. Thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. On. My pleasure. I really appreciate it. This can be very helpful for parents. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Well, I hope you found that interview helpful. I'm going to definitely have her back. And so maybe I'll go into the Facebook group and ask if you guys had any follow-up questions and I will kind of collect those. And maybe in a few months I'll have her back because I feel like I just tapped the surface. I could have asked her like many more questions, but I knew I had to be respectful of her schedule. So I hope you found that interesting as well. And definitely check out her website at cbtspectrum.com. She treats in New York. So if you're in New York, you can reach out to her, but she's also a fantastic speaker. So definitely check out her site and her resources. I hope that you are enjoying the podcast in general. I try to bring you people who can offer like a beautiful new perspective and grow your knowledge. And when I don't have that information, I will find someone like Dr. Sachs to do that for me. So if you are enjoying the podcast, please don't forget to hit a star on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher. You know, somebody messaged me and said that I'm not on Stitcher anymore. I don't know what's up with that because Stitcher says I am on there. So I did reach out to them. So hopefully you are listening to this on Stitcher. But if you can hit a star to rate the show, I greatly appreciate that. Parents greatly appreciate that because there's a lot of noise out there in the podcast land that isn't necessarily helpful or fruitful. And we all are short on time. So when it's rated highly, parents appreciate that. And if you have a few extra seconds and can leave a review, I greatly appreciate that. And so do parents. I want to show my gratitude and appreciation by reading one of them. Thank you, XJHHJX, (laughs) whatever your name is. Uh, They wrote such good OCD info. My four-year-old daughter has been diagnosed with OCD, but I've had trouble finding her a local therapist specializing in OCD because she's so young. My older daughter has some anxiety too. I binge listen to most of your podcast and I'm finally caught up, which is, by the way, incredibly impressive because this is episode 219 and they're about 30 to 60 minutes long each. So that is full commitment. And I appreciate that. They continue. I can't thank you enough for your tips and for sharing such specific information and application. One of her previous, hmm, actually just ends there. That's weird. I didn't get to see your whole review. It just ends on one of her previous. So anyway, I do want to say thank you for writing that. I do appreciate when you guys take the time to write a review because I know I read reviews before I get into a podcast because I just don't have a lot of time and I know other parents do as well. So thank you for that. Sorry that it got cut off or it ended and I can't read the rest of it. But if you have something nice to say, maybe I'll be reading your review next time. So I hope that you find the sparkle in everything you do. And I'll be talking to you again next Tuesday. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com.